Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Welcome to Conversations About Collaboration, Episode 2. Today, Dr. Nick Morgan joins me. The man is a freaking rock star. He is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches. He has done lots of different things in his career. His latest book is on virtual communication. It's called Can You Hear Me? And we talk about all sorts of different things, including, gotta look this up, proprioception and emojis. Let's rock. Hey, Nick, where does this podcast find you? I, I am just outside of Boston in the leafy enclave of Lincoln, Mass. Good deal. Well, thanks for taking the time. Um, your entire work is based on collaboration, so you are a natural guest for the show. Uh, talk a little bit about how you help people tell their stories and how collaboration is key to your business, really. Uh, our business... Uh, at Public Words, we're a very small team, is all about uh, all about getting to know the client and to, um, we like to say, get to know them better than they know themselves. We don't feel like we're doing our job unless we get them to cough up a story. They say, oh, I haven't thought about that in years, or I haven't told anybody that story in years, or I didn't think that was relevant. So uh, we, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to understand uh, what makes the other person tick, um, what makes their story um, uh, sticky and meaningful, and how we can uh, we can best tell that story to the world? I, I can give you an example if that Please. would help, uh, because uh, I think it will show the sort of thing I mean. It's often quite surprising what direction it goes in. So I got a call. This was two or three years ago now from a, an executive who had been at the same company for 25 years. That was the first surprise. That's so unusual these days. Um, and he had been promoted to senior vice president. That was his dream job. He wanted this all his career. And he said, surprisingly, perhaps, um, surprised me anyway, I've been in this job six months now, the SVP job, and they're saying they're going to fire me. And so I said, what's that about? And he said, well, I was promoted for being cool in a crisis for 25 years each time. I just put my head down and did the work when everybody else was freaking out. And so they kept promoting me. And now that I'm an SVP, I have to motivate my employees. He said, I've been squelching my emotions for 25 years. I don't even know if I have any. <laughs> how help, Can you help me? What, what is this emotion thing? How can, I, how can I start showing people I care about them? So... I said, come on down to Boston, and, and he showed up, and we have a standard office uh, conference room like many another conference room. Your your listeners, I'm sure, can imagine it, the long brown wooden table with the 12 chairs around it. And every executive that's ever come to work with me until then would walk into that conference room, size the table up, and go sit in the middle, back to the wall, face to the door. That's the power position. You can sort of command the whole deck from there. and. He didn't. He went and sat at the end. So I was that was the first surprise. Hmm. Or the second, I guess, by actual count. And 
instead of talking to me the way a normal SVP would, uh, he he had his head down, his shoulders rounded. I'm sort of giving it away now as I describe the body language. Uh, he came across as somebody who was uh, very close within himself and, and chatting with him. I had a difficult time making eye contact, which is really unusual for an executive. And, and because that's the first thing you get trained in executive school is make eye contact with people, especially if you come up through sales or anything like that. Well, he didn't. So finally I called him on it about an hour in and I said, Hey, uh, uh, everything about your body language suggests you want to be invisible. What's up with that? An SVP role is not an invisible role, especially for a large company like you work for. You, you have public uh, meetings and shareholders and things like that. And to my astonishment, he starts crying. And he, he says, uh, uh, finally, when he can get the words out, he was bullied from age 12 to age 18. Hmm. He grew up in a very small town. There was no escaping this boy who was about four years older than him. And so uh, he just withdrew into himself to try to minimize the damage, kind of like that person who curls up when they're being kicked, just to try to minimize the pain or the bruising. And he said, and this was very powerful for me because we always learn from our clients. I think that's an element of real collaboration uh, as much as they learn from us or as much as we bring to them. Uh, he said, I didn't realize I was still carrying around those memories 35 years later. And what I learned in that moment was something which should be obvious to any student of body language, which is that uh, your body language is, yes, of course, how you feel in the moment. Um, but it's also your history, how you feel about your body, all the knocks and all the positive things that have happened to you and your psyche over the years. And in his case, he was still carrying around that bullying from, from that time long ago. And it was getting in the way of him being present and operating effectively in meetings and being a, a fully fledged executive uh, in the present 35 years later. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit about body language under the current circumstances, because right now you're on Zoom and I can tell that you're vaguely interested. Um, but it's not the same as, as being in person. And as you, know, you just described, collaboration is about many different things. A lot of them are much more uh, subtle right? Or subject to interpretation. Um, how, how has it been for you uh, switching to mostly online collaboration and work? Well, I, I wrote a book about how to communicate in the virtual world uh, two years ago. And it's called, Can You Hear Me? And what I said in the book was, uh, we live in a half real half virtual world. And if only I'd said we live in a virtual world, just gone for it. I'd be a genius now. But uh, sadly, <laughs> sadly, I was describing the reality then, which was we still had face-to-face -face meetings and conferences and, um, and all the rest of it. And, and business was relying on face-to-face -face at the same time as these virtual tools were becoming more and more widely used. But a big surprise to me in 2018, because I was somebody who used video conferencing a fair amount, was you'll never guess the number of the real extent of video conferencing in large corporations in the United States that was just what I have the data on in 2018, 5%. Wow. And so when we talk about a change when the pandemic hit in March, a lot of companies went from 5% to 100% in a week uh, after saying we should do more virtual collaboration. 
uh, and not being able to make it happen for years. Suddenly they made it happen in two weeks, three weeks, however long it is. But uh, I've been doing a lot of talking in the virtual world uh, since uh, to companies who say, help, tell me, tell me how, how to do this better. Because while they did make the switch, it wasn't exactly easy. And to your point and to your question, uh, as, as I discovered when I did the research for the book, it is significantly harder to uh, communicate uh, and to connect with people virtually. And the, the, the big single reason, there are a lot of little technical reasons, but the big single reason is that what we humans care about most is each other's intent. Mm-hmm. So when you say words to me, I listen to the actual words, but I'm, my unconscious mind is really listening for your intent. Do you say that with a smile, Buster, or do you say that with a sneer? What's going on behind those words? Are you my friend? Or are you going to going to hit me when I'm looking the other way? Um, and and a, a whole set of questions beyond that a sort of obvious initial uh, simple one. And and so that intent is like a wrapper that comes from largely from body language, and it's unconscious to us. We're not aware of it until you take it away. And what happens even on video conference? is we think we're seeing the other person, but what we're actually seeing is a two-dimensional representation of the other person. And that three dimensions, last time I saw a human being live, I remember they were in three dimensions. Um, now that we're in two, you're squeezed into two dimensions. That flattens out your affect. So even though I'm seeing your face, Phil, and even though I'm seeing that that winning smile occasionally, um, it's not as vivid as it would be in person. And so it's like, I tell people it's like if you considered yourself an eight on a scale of 10 as a communicator, uh, the virtual world turns it down to about a four. Hmm. And if you want to compensate for that, you have to crank the volume back up. So uh, in, in a number of ways uh, that we could get into, but uh, the, the main point is we humans care about intent. Intent does not come through as clearly in the virtual world. And so we have to overcompensate. Yeah, it, it's interesting listening to you speak because like you, I think that collaboration and communication are cousins. And people tend to forget that the word communicate means to make comment. But something may be obvious to us and not obvious to the other person in general, much less when we're in two dimensions, to your point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and therein lies the... Uh, the tr- the tragedy of the of the modern world we uh, i was saying to somebody the other day though imagine if we'd suffered this pandemic in the mid to late 90s when we still had dial up and video conferencing was largely uh, a gleam in the eye of some IT people who could barely make it work on a good day um, it would have been just immensely more difficult and so in a way we're very fortunate these tools are not perfect and they do cause us issues because of their failings, uh, Zoom fatigue is a real thing. And I could talk about the geeky reason why we all experience Zoom fatigue. Let, uh, let's geek out on that for a second. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. You're taught the five uh, senses in school. Smell, sight, taste, hearing, touch, those things. We all know those things. You're, for some reason, we're not taught a sixth perception, which is proprioception. And that's arguably the most important one, but nobody talks about it. It's it's a mystery to anybody except folks like me who worry about body language. What it is, it's it's the sense, which is a collection of really interesting data inputs that you get um, from the world around you to keep track of where you are in space and where the people around you are in space. So you may remember cocktail parties 
that lovely institution that we used to complain about, but now we would kill to be in a cocktail party and have no masks and just be able to relax and touch people on the shoulder and mill around and get a drink. I mean, how great does that sound, right? So um, the the reason that that is uh, possible for your uh, for you as a human being is that your proprioception sense is going nuts, keeping track of where you are and everybody around you in space is, so you don't bump into them, so you can connect with them so you can get into an appropriate distance from them, not too close, not too far away to have a conversation for everybody to feel comfortable. That your proprioception sense there whenever you've got more than one or two, three people is working overtime. All right. So go to the virtual world, go to a video conference. What happens? My proprioception sense says Phil is about three feet away from me because that's where the screen is. But I'm looking at Phil. His head is way too tiny for anyone's ever said that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for for him to be three feet away. So where the heck is he? I have no idea. And my proprioception sense can't figure it out. As a result, it goes into low-level stress response because there is a person in my field of Ken that I can't quite place. And that's alarming for my uh, proprioception sense. And so that's how you get these low levels of stress. That's what Zoom fatigue literally is. It's the stress response to not knowing where all these people are. And of course, we're talking one-on-one, so I only have to worry about one of you. Add a Brady Bunch uh, screen where there are five or six people or more, uh, and it gets even more confusing for your proprioception sense. It's like a cocktail party where you can't tell where anybody is, and that's just very stressful uh, for your body and your unconscious mind because its job is to keep you alive. One of the ways you stay alive is by not letting people get too close unless you trust them and know their intent. Mm. Fascinating stuff. I did a guest lecture the other day from McGill University in Montreal, and it was very much a Brady Bunch type effect. And some of the students had enabled their cameras, but because on my 15-inch MacBook Pro screen, they were, uh, I don't know, two centimeters by two centimeters. Mm -hmm. There's no way that I could pick up any of their body language, uh, which as a former college professor, I wasn't great at it, but I could tell if someone was really interested or if they just were kind of phoning it in. So, yeah, I, I didn't know the science behind that, and I have to yeah. add proprioception to my vocabulary. Yeah, uh, sorry sorry about that. It's a, it's, a, it's a big word, but an important one for as long as this pandemic lasts. Hmm. So video conferencing is one of your tools of choice. Uh, you mentioned some of the other tools that you used before. Uh, talk to me about the other arrows in your quiver. Well, back in the day, we used face-to-face. Now, um, of course, we're, we're, uh, we're doing everything on on video conferencing, um, we use the whole range of uh, text-based communication uh, possibilities. Um, If you think of a communication hierarchy, text-based communications, email, Slack, uh, Google Chat, basic email, text messages themselves, all of that, that actually constitutes the largest amount of stuff that we exchange on any given day. And people forget about that with all the excitement to talk about Zoom and video conferencing. We're doing a lot more of that, but still, all the while, most people are video conferencing. They're also texting, they're they're, uh, slacking, they're emailing, they're trying to keep up with that, which for most people is a kind of a, yeah, exactly. It's a a juggling match and it's a to-do list. for for, uh, So that's the way we receive the text stuff. And um, as a result, uh, 
we do triage. One of the issues that comes up with that is we all have way more of that coming in than we can. And so our messages get shorter and shorter. Therefore, uh, and our responses get shorter and shorter. Therefore, increasing the likelihood that we're going to misunderstand each other in text-based communications. Because if you think about that hierarchy, text-based, and then the tele- the old-fashioned telephone, and then video conferencing at the top, uh, text-based is the most uh, widely used, but it's also uh, the most prone to misunderstanding because you can't immediately confirm. And how many of us uh, have had that experience of, of saying something that gets taken the wrong way and then you spend another 12 emails or text messages trying to straighten it out? No, I didn't mean that. I'm so sorry. Um, I always ask people, so how many of you sent the email, good job, nice job, great job, with or without exclamation points? And Everybody raises their hand when I'm talking to an audience. Everybody sent that email. And I say, don't worry, it's not a trick question. There's nothing wrong with that email. It's a good email to send. You're a nice person. But would it surprise you to learn that 60% of the time that email is taken as sarcastic? And then people go, <gasps> well, I used to hear that. Now on, on Zoom, I don't. But I wait for the inaudible virtual gasp. And then I'll say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that that other person is really stupid for misunderstanding such a simple, obvious email. And I'll say, you know, I understand that, but it's really the wrong response. The right response is to say, how can I make my intent clear in a virtual world in text when it isn't obviously clear? Because if something can be read sarcastically, the odds are we're going to do it. And there's a good scientific, neuroscientific reason for that. And that is that we are a species whose brain's job it is to keep us alive four seconds into the future, four minutes into the future, four years into the future, because we have a prefrontal cortex. We're always busy. Our brains are always busy trying to keep us safe. And so when we don't have good information about intent, when it's not quite clear, that nice job email, could that be sarcastic? It makes sense for us in an evolutionary survival mode kind of way to assume the worst. We're descended from an anxious species, the ones who were walking through the jungle going, hey, what's saber-toothed tiger? Who cares, man? Don't worry. There isn't any saber-toothed tiger here. Those are the ones who got eaten. So we're not descended from them. We're descended from the anxious ones who were going around saying, oh, it's there. It's there. Be prepared. Be ready. Uh, and they lived and survived. And so that's who we are. We are a really a very frightened, anxious species, constantly projecting a few seconds into the future scanning for danger, trying to keep us ahead. So anything that looks like it could possibly be negative, it's a good survival technique to assume the worst, to assume that it is negative. That's what we do. That's why virtual communications are so hard. Uh, As I listen to you talk, I can't help but think about how communication and collaboration are so personal. So Mm. forget the tools that you use. I was on a project, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And let's just say we relied upon email. I didn't win that battle. Don't win them all. But sometimes I would acknowledge the email with, you know, thank you or message received or good job. And this really irritated that person because he didn't want that type of email. So in a strange way, I've actually come full circle. And I used to be anti-emoji, but in Slack or in Zoom, a thumbs up emoji, although it sounds trite, actually does acknowledge or the eyes I'm looking into it. Um, And I actually think that can be useful. I am a big fan of emojis. And I've been arguing about them ever since the book came out in 2018. And I even did a piece for the Wall Street Journal uh, because I ran across some research that turned it turns out that if you're over 40, you're uh, liable to think emojis are, are silly or childish and they shouldn't be used in the workplace. 
if you're under 40, you're not suffering from that burden. Um, and so it's easy. So I always tell the audiences, all right, which one of you like emojis? You're over 40, you're over 40, you're over 40. And, and we get a little chuckle out of that. But the, uh, the point is, it saves you a lot of time and trouble. Because uh, to your example, if I said a thumbs up, there's no possible way you can misconstrue that. It just doesn't happen. So uh, uh, it's by far the better way to do it. Yeah, I'm sure if you picked a different finger, that would send a different message. But I'm going to go out on a limb here. Exactly. This is the first podcast in the history of the world in which we've talked about emojis and proprioception. <laughs> Excellent. It's what a good I... day, Phil. It's a good day. It is a good day. What collaboration advice would you give yourself 10 years ago for today? The main thing is I've learned over time to listen more and and uh, wait and let the other person uh, say what's on their mind first. There is a caveat to that, though. I mean, that's pretty standard advice. Uh, everybody with wisdom uh, tells each other to listen more, uh, and and that's a good thing. Uh, and the other the uh, the other aspect of that is not to be preparing your answer while the other person is talking, because uh, then you're not really listening. But but there is an exception to that, and it especially turns up in the virtual world. So it's especially important now, which is uh, you should be prepared to go first in the sense of going deep because it's harder to establish a virtual connection. It's harder to get collaboration going in the virtual world because we are uh, removed from each other. We're not getting all those rich signals that we get when we uh, meet face-to-face. Uh, and so it's a little harder. The, the relationships are a little more brittle. And so by going first, I mean going deep first. So be willing to share something. Be willing to share a, a failure or something deeply authentic or something that really matters to you because that will give the other person permission to do the same, to open up in a uh, in a virtual way, which is not always easy to do. It's our tendency on video conferences to keep it light and keep it simple. It's hard to to do that kind of deep sharing that you need if you're going to establish a, a true connection. Face-to-face, you can do that more easily. Um, you can break bread together and you can talk about other things, but that's just much harder to do in the, uh, in the virtual world. Good stuff. We'll get you ha- out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? So I'm reading uh, this wonderful book uh, for anybody who's politically geeky uh, called The President's Club. Uh, and it's about the former presidents and how they advise the current uh, incumbent. Um, and this was written before Trump was president. So this, this actually refers to uh, everybody up until Trump. But um, uh, the, the idea is that in ways which are not usually acknowledged publicly, um, the former presidents often serve uh, as deputies or as conduits to uh, foreign governments. Uh, they help out in quiet ways uh, because when you think about it, they're they're part of perhaps the world's most exclusive club. They've, they've been in that seat and nobody else knows exactly what it's like to be, be in that seat. So what's interesting is that it turns out that, again, present incumbent perhaps accepted. We'll find out uh, as time goes on. But um, it, often they collaborate uh, across parties in ways that are quite surprising. Uh, and so we've heard of the famous friendships between the senior Bush and Bill Clinton, and, and the, the list goes on. So uh, uh, it's just a fascinating, fun book for anybody who's interested in, in uh, politics, especially the politer politics of a few years ago. Yeah. Good stuff, Nick. Thanks for taking the time. You stay safe. Thank you, Phil. It's a great pleasure to chat with you. 
Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, or subscribe. Thank you to the folks at podcastedition.com for producing this podcast. You guys rock. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.